Coming up in this podcast, property development challenges, weak housing market, fast brick robotics, subcontractor protections, and our special report, business dynasties, including the Buckridge, Perrin, and Blackburn families. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Um, Mark, lots of property development news uh, centred around approval processes and the appeals against them. Yeah, look, we've had a quite extraordinary run of rulings in various judicial tribunals and it's highlighting a growing issue for property developers that they can do all the work they like around their architectural design and, and the, the construction side of it, um, but they've got to go through this judicial process. Uh, the most recent example we reported, Norrup and Wilson, uh, they were seeking approval for a apartment building in the Applecross area, yeah. um, around that Canning Bridge precinct where there are plans for high rise. Have they already got one going there? They've got projects underway there. Yep. They've got plans for more, but they got knocked back by the development assessment panel that applies in that area. Um, Serona Capital was another example. They've got plans for a project in South Perth. Uh, Luke Saracini's company is planning a development around the old Royal George Hotel in Fremantle. Um, So, you know, the whole point of establishing development assessment panels um, when they first came in was to get more consistency and more reliability there for developers so that people weren't beholden to local councillors and their sort of very localised influences to sort of raise the bar, get a more professional assessment. Um, And yet, in one sense, it's just created another forum for uh, judicial review. And then, of course, people can then go back to the State Administrative Tribunal or they can go all the way to the Supreme Court um, to, to... you know, appeal these sorts of things. Yeah. And against the backdrop of where local councils are, in many cases, um, furiously reworking their planning schemes because they're trying to work out what they want. So City of South Perth is the, the classic example. Uh, they had a council that put in place a framework which encouraged new high-rise development and left scope wide open for developers. Then there was a community sort of reaction against that. Um, and yet Serona Capital, their project was in an area where there are no height limits. <laughs> and yet they failed to get it through. Yeah, right. So quite extraordinary. Um, we've had another case that was well read um, on our website. Um, Woolworths are doing a new supermarket on Canning Highway in the Alfred Cove area, just down the highway from a uh, very successful IGA supermarket. Now, Woolies got all the approvals, and yet the owner of that competing supermarket went off to the Supreme Court, essentially trying to block the development, claiming that they'd failed to, um, that the, the, the assessment process was not properly done. So once again, it's a case of a business competitor using the judicial process to try and block something. Yeah, and can and I just confirm that? We're talking Alfred Cove there, not Canning Bridge? 
Well, sorry, you're right there. Yeah, I got the, the suburbs a bit mixed up. Just, yeah, well, just down yeah. the road from Canning Bridge. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people South River will know that IGA. It's very popular. It sits there near the raffles, and and he's kind of he's a I think he's a very successful retailer. Who, the guy that owns that, he's got a few IGAs, and uh, and I, I think that was his you know pre- premier asset. So I I can understand why he doesn't want a competitor in the area if he can help it. Absolutely, yes. That's right. And the new one is on the corner of Reynolds Road. Yeah. So yeah, just a little way down. A little bit further down, yeah, yeah not, not yeah. as obvious, yeah. And then the last example is the ongoing, long-running saga at Dunsborough about plans for a new petrol station. Mm. And in that case, it's the local community that's been up in arms. Um, they don't like the idea of a, a petrol station in the centre of town. They want it somewhere else. Well, another one, I think, is that? Well, that's right, it will be the third one. Now, this was, you know, a, to my mind, a kind of a bizarre case the developer got approval under a scheme where it was deemed to be a convenience store. So in that case, the council, again, is changing the rules. And then so the the DAP um, and the courts are saying, how do we assess this? You know, these rules keep on changing. It's it's got to be a very messy situation. All right. So the point you're making is that the, the new system, which was meant to create consistency, has failed to do that. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's, and then, and then again, that leads to that whole problem of then developers don't know what they're in for, and therefore they invest a lot of money in plans and planning, and the process, and if, and they take a lot of time and waste a lot of money and have to go back to the drawing board, and they miss those market opportunities. That's that's very negative for business. And I think a theme that keeps on coming back as well, the assessment almost invariably for the apartment projects comes down to height. Yeah. Now, the developers can do all sorts of work about having a very slim building and all sorts of community amenity um, and quality design, but people get caught up on height. Yeah. That continues to be a big issue. No, no, absolutely. Right. Um, Now, sticking with property, as I think will be a fairly consistent theme throughout this podcast, Mark, um, residential property prices remain weak. Um, what do we dwell on there in the lead up to Christmas? Yeah, look, there's a number of themes running through this um, this little topic. Uh, we had new data out during the week from both CoreLogic and Rewa about the Perth residential property market. Now, in fact, slightly conflicting data from the two of them because they have two different ways of measuring the median house price. Um, Rewa was saying the prices are up a little bit, and that's based on actual transactions, uh, whereas CoreLogic, which has become the... I guess the the most generally accepted um, measure of residential property values around the country, mm-hmm. they're saying, well, look, actually they were down again based on our methodology. Um, over the course of the last year, they're saying residential property values in Perth are down about 4.2%. Mm. So continued softness. And then in a national context, um, Sydney and Melbourne and other states are very weak, but yeah. particularly Sydney and Melbourne. Yep. And this is raising all sorts of policy issues. So on the one hand, you've got APRA, which is the prudential regulator for the banks. Um, They're pushing very hard for a tightening of lending standards. Um, So hence, a lot of debate around a credit squeeze being uh, imposed. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you've got the Reserve Bank, and their mandate is around the state of the economy. It was a very interesting speech on Thursday night by their deputy governor, And they talked for the first time, I believe, about the possibility that the next move in interest rates might in fact be down 
rather than up. Now, there's been the occasional economist in the market um, who've raised this possibility, um, but it's been you know interesting that the Reserve Bank has now sort of just flagged the possibility. Mm. They're not predicting it, but just saying, well, you know, that might be something we need to do to keep the economy ticking over. And one of the points that Guy Bell raised in his speech is that we're in uncharted territory. When you've got such weak property markets in Sydney and Melbourne, um, and to varying degrees in other cities, at a time when the economy in general is doing okay. Yeah, yeah especially over east. Yeah. And, and increasingly, and I say this cautiously, over here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, you know, Mark, how much room have they got to play with on those interest rates? They're not exactly high interest rates in any case. Well, only 1.5%. Yeah. Um, and then he even flagged the possibility that Australia might go down the same path that other countries did after the GFC yeah, and, right. and with what they call quantitative easing, Crikey. which is effectively printing extra money and pumping that into the, into the system. QE Oz. That's right. <laughs> um, and then one more bit of information that came out, you know, housing affordability in Western Australia is at very comfortable levels. Yep. And yet um, the stats are telling us first home buyers are moving away from the market. There's been a 20% fall mm. in activity by first home buyers, hence that concern around the credit squeeze. Yeah, okay, right. So they just can't get in the market for other reasons other than price, Well, potentially. Yeah. Well, obviously price is the ultimate problem, but yeah. Affordability has improved, yeah. but you know, it's still a big challenge. Yeah, no, no, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, well, that's a problem, isn't it? Um, all right, and and not not you know not no one's so less people buying houses for Christmas, and I and I forget the uh, the way the property market works, but I think it goes pretty quiet over that Christmas period. Lots of people might go out and do some tire kicking, but I don't think transactionally it's that busy, is it? Until sort of end of Jan, people start to wake up again and go and have another look, right? So, yeah, not not the best time for the uh, real estate market. That's right. Um, now, kind of still linked to real estate, <laughs> Mark. There's been a Hard week for building technology company Fast Brick Robotics, the uh, company which has a which can make a house with a robot. What's happening there? Look, uh, this company uh, listed on the stock market. Um, in fact, now has the rather ugly name FBR. Uh, they've had a lot of progress over the past couple of years. Um, it's, it's homegrown technology uh, developed here in Perth. Essentially, it's a a big robotic arm sitting on the back of a truck that can lay bricks. And recently they announced a major milestone that they, they built a, um, a, a house structure um, in a secret location hmm. um, using this technology. In three um, days, right? In three days, that's right. Another big moment for them was their announcement last year that they'd signed an agreement with Caterpillar, so you know, a global uh, company that had obviously caught the attention. Um, and you know, they'd had this memorandum of understanding and you know, that was seen as a real um, fill-up for Fast Brick Robotics. They very quietly announced late on Tuesday uh, that that agreement had been terminated mm. um, with minimal explanation. Yeah. Uh, they talked about it being a, a shift in strategic priorities and not a reflection on their technology. Well. The market has passed judgment. Um, their share price has had a, a significant slide over the past three days. Yep. Um, now at the lowest point um, they've had for the for the past year, 
I mean, they peaked at around 28 cents middle of last year. Yep. They're now down around 12 and a half cents. And I think they were they were still above 20 cents just in the last month or well, two. That's right. They? Yeah, yes, right. yes. And what so are they now, did you say? They're 12 and a half cents. Yeah, right, okay. Yeah. Also talked about a shift in their commercialisation strategy. Um, they've picked up, um, once again, I think quite ugly terminology. You know, we all know about software as a service or yeah. infrastructure as a service. Well, they're now talking about wall as a service. Mm. So instead of people buying one of their bricklaying machines, mm-hmm. they will offer it as a service. They'll go out and build a wall for you okay. or a bunch of walls. <laughs> so, they're, so, you know, some really significant shifts. And it, I guess it's an example where you're a listed company, you know, you're in the full glare of the public and all the investors. If you don't clearly explain what you're doing and if you have sudden shifts in direction, which are not terribly well explained, yep. the market passes judgment. Yeah, well, that's the challenge, isn't it? You're listed, you're listed for good reasons, and you do get a lot more publicity when you're listed. But if you're in any way opaque uh, in the way you operate, especially with these kind of uh, technology companies, they're new, they're unproven, and they're not earning any real money, um, it's, yeah, the market gets a bit jittery, doesn't it? Uh, am I right in saying, I haven't seen any video of this house being built. Is that is that... I've seen some video of a house being built, but not the one they talked about in three days. There is some video out there. Okay. Um, But, yeah. And, look, clearly this company has achieved a lot. Um, But, you know, this is a a tough moment for them. Yeah. Um, They've got some hurdles to uh, get over now. And and I think the market will require a bit more convincing um, before they rekindle their enthusiasm for this stock. Well, I still think it's a very exciting story, and uh, you know they're, they're really taking on something of one of the one of the most manual trades there is, and a dangerous one to some degree. And especially as we go more high rise and things, um, uh, you know, I think it's fascinating. So, best of luck to them in any, in any case. Um, now, Mark, new rules are announced to protect subcontractors on government projects, state government projects. What's the detail there? So another long-running issue here. I mean, every time a, uh, a contractor goes bust, people ask the question, you know, where's the money gone um, and why aren't the head contractors or the principals looking after the subbies? So the state government came out during the week and said they're going to extend the use of what they call project bank accounts. Um, so these will apply more broadly across state government uh, projects. Essentially, it means that um, the head contractor and the people they deal with directly, uh, there'll be a more transparent uh, relationship there um, and and a clearer flow of money. But it still doesn't cascade the whole way down through the chain of subcontractors. Mm. So the the little guy at the bottom of the chain... So the subcontractor to the subcontractor. That's right. So as you go further and further down the chain, it gets less and less effective. Now, there's been a mixed reaction to it. Uh, Louise Stewart, who represents subcontractors WA, she said an encouraging step, but she wants the government to go further um, and implement the use of statutory trusts. So that's a more of a, you know, a, a legal structure. Um, and you know, she wants this to apply across all projects because, of course, this is just government. So all the subbies that were working for RCR Tomlinson yep. and their many projects, and you know, information came out during the week that Subbies are out, I think, $250 million on various RCR projects. They're still uh, wondering if they'll see any of that. Um, Conversely, the industry, people like the Civil Contractors Federation and the Master Builders Association, they're concerned about this. 
Um, it adds another, if you like, layer of complexity. Um, they think it might add more cost to a project. Certainly, you know, cash flow management becomes more challenging for the head contractors. But the other intriguing thing, the government has commissioned a review in this space. Um, the review is sitting on the minister's desk, but has not yet been released. Mm. So this is a, a preliminary step and, and a slightly unusual timing when the review's been done. Um, so there's more to come on this topic we anticipate. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it's a fraught one, I must admit. So obviously, I, I guess I guess there was a lot of talk prior to the election, so you, you would have presumed the state government, when they came in, had a bit of a plan around it, but it doesn't seem to have happened. <laughs> Often the case, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it, I'm wary about this because look, it's inherently an area where there's commercial risk. Yeah. And you can't remove that unless you impose some other significant cost. Yeah. And by only having it at one one level, you, there's still risk there for all the, the, the junior subcontractors, if you want to call them that. Um, now, Mark, our special report this week coming is on business dynasties. Um, it's another deep dive into the most resilient of the state's family businesses. Um, who, have we got, who have we got to talk about? Okay, look, there's a couple of different strands. Now, Dan Wilkie is having a chat with the Blackburn family. Now, this is a bit of a different take on the dynasty concept. Uh, John Blackburn was well known in Perth uh, for his real estate business. Um, his two sons, um, Paul and Nathan, um, have each carved their own careers in the space. Uh, Paul has his own uh, apartment development um, and real estate business, you know, one of the state's biggest developers at the moment. Yep. Um, and of course, uh, first amongst equals in our 40 Under 40 Awards a couple of years ago. Correct. And then Nathan Blackburn, his brother, uh, runs Cedar Woods, so an ASX-listed land developer uh, with national operations. So it's, it's just a really fascinating insight into how, you know, clearly property is in the blood mm. and, uh, and the boys clearly have, have picked up something from Dad and all his years in the business. So, you know, it's a really good read about how the, the two generations of the Blackburn family um, sort of work together, learn from each other, um, and, and to see what the two boys are doing with their respective businesses. And I remember when, when Paul uh, won 40 Under 40, he was very clear about the fact that that although Blackburn, I think it was Blackburn Properties before, was it, or is Blackburn Properties now? Now I'm, now I'm confusing myself on the name. But the, in, in effect, the Blackburn business, his dad had the Blackburn business, but it, it effectively owned property and had a, had a rent role. It was a, it was a, it was a a real estate agency and an owned property, whereas he's turned it into, he bought it out first of all, I think he bought his dad out, and then he's turned it into what is one of the state's you know, major property developers in, in the apartment business, uh, very successful at it too. Mm, no, he's done well. And then Nathan has obviously took over from Paul Sadlier quite recently, uh, and you know, you know, so he's got a yet to see what he will do with Cedar Woods, I suppose, but that, that's been a, a really successful company with a really interesting and conservative stance on the way it invests in property that allowed it to really um, get through the property downturn really well in the last downturn. And one of those businesses that just quietly successful. Yeah. Um, it doesn't attract the big headlines, um, and that's because they don't surprise the market. Yeah, gotcha. Um, either way, yeah. know, it's good, solid, predictable business. It's a sensible way to run one, Mark. Yes. 
Uh, and who else have we got? And the other piece we're doing is a focus around the perennial issue of um, family business succession. And there are two very uh, topical examples um, around at the moment that give, give us a framework for, for discussing this theme. Um, Stan Perrin, as we've mentioned previously, passed away um, just a couple of weeks ago and his funeral was held during the week. Now, Stan Perrin put in place a structure. He started this process 20 odd years ago where he put in place a board and a governance framework and an executive team so that his group can continue operating smoothly. Um, Stan's passed away, um, you know, a great loss for Western Australia, but the business is set up so it can continue. Yep. Um, he's got one family member on the board, um, his daughter Elizabeth. Uh, she also runs the um, Stan Perrin Charitable Trust, so you know one of Western Australia's most generous sort of philanthropic trusts. And she spoke at the funeral um, about how she uh, will work very hard to continue the legacy um, that her father established. Mm. So there's a story of continuity in, in a family business group. Um, the other news during the week was that the Buckeridge family, um, or, or BGC, has appointed Macquarie Capital as the advisor on the sale of their business. Yes. So that was an example where you know, Len Buckeridge built you know, another great WA business, uh, but you know, he's got several sons, stepsons, grandchildren, and they couldn't sort of, there was, there was no clear succession plan, um, and the family decided, look, let's just sell the business. Yeah. We'll take the money, and we'll let somebody else do it. Interestingly, though, you know, I mean, the, 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 they obviously announced the exit plan some time ago, and obviously they didn't have a clear exit strategy. The fact that uh, Macquarie's come in now and not at the beginning, you think? Yeah, look, I think there was more of a, an in-principle decision. All right. We're going to sell the business. Gotcha. Then it was a case of, right, how do we go about this? Right. So but they have, the next they step, have sold parts of it already, right? Uh, well, they've put some of their property assets. So they've sold the Aloft Hotel yeah. in Rivervale. They're Western. trying to sell the Western Hotel right. um, in the city, but they still haven't closed that transaction. Gotcha. Um, and then there's all the operating businesses. Yeah. Um, but they've also brought in some non-family directors. So, of course, Neil Hamilton has come in um, as chairman of the board, um, and Jenny Seabrook has come in as a director as well. Yeah. So they will help the family go through this process and make these decisions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, Mark, when, when is a dynasty not a dynasty? Because I'm thinking, you know, uh, we've got also during the week Tim Roberts spent $30 million-odd uh, buying into mineral resources, of which I think he's on the board He's as on well. the board, yes. And, I mean, of course, he, he was uh, second generation, along with his uh, siblings, uh, in the multiplex business, which uh, his, his dad, John Roberts, had and which they listed. And the listing was initially not seen as an exit, but obviously became an exit. Uh, and then it was bought by Brookfield. Mm. Um, and, and so we kind of, is that a dynasty still or not? Does a dynasty require the business to remain intact? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'd say probably not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, look, um, uh, Tim, his brother Andrew, their sister Denby, yeah. um, they've largely gone their separate ways. So they've each, you know, took a lot of money, obviously, when the business was sold. Um, courtesy of you know what their dad John built up, yeah, um, and he passed and away obviously, so they've probably yes. got some inheritance there as yeah. well. Yeah, and 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 you know they were both involved in the business yeah. uh, for a period of time, um, but I think it's like the the Buckeridge family, 
you know, I mean, gee, they, they could try to keep the business together and mm. try to keep running it, but, you know, the, the second generation um, don't have, if you like, the, the desire or necessarily the skill set to run yep. it like the founder did. Um, and there's that challenge about getting agreement across a disparate family. Yeah, correct. Um, so the Roberts family, you know, the, they've all got their money and now investing as they see fit separately. Well, am I right in suggesting the Smorgan family did a very similar thing many years ago? Did they not split the business up into various parts? I think they did, yes. Yeah, Smorgan yeah. family in, in Victoria. In Victoria, yeah. 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 So another example, of, I think that just that family got too big to... So they, they divvied it up and each each took a piece of it or something like that. Mm. Yeah. And so what it, I think it also highlights that one of the lists we've got on our website under the BNIQ tab is WA Business Dynasties. Yeah. And I think the ones that are on there, including some that go back three, four, five, six generations, so Lionel Sampson Sadlier's, uh, the Betts business run by the Breckler family, uh, Bower and O'Day and others... I think it's quite extraordinary when you can keep a business inside one family yeah. for three, four, five generations. Um, it's a rare thing and, and many, very challenging in many ways. Yeah, yeah, and maybe it's, maybe it's the scale of the business that once they get too big, it becomes about the money rather than about the lifestyle and, and continuing on in a trade or an industry like, like your family has. Hmm. All right, well, thank you, Mark. Um, we're in our 25th year and we're planning a special look back at the past quarter century. Join the team from Business News and some very special guests at a luncheon on Thursday, 7th of February, 2019. Guest business speakers and entrepreneurs representing the success of Western Australian business will share their views on changes seen across the years. Please go to our website and hit the events tab at the top of the page. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.